I'm going to read a portion of the text we're looking at this morning in John chapter 4. I'm going to be reading in verse 34 and 35, and you can follow along. Jesus said to them, that would be to the disciples that were with him, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do not say there there are yet four months and then comes the harvest. Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields that they are white for harvest. Uh, You may be seated. We'll be looking at uh, John chapter 4 this morning, uh, but it's a, a way of introduction to you. Um, I wanted to give you some, uh, some background. I'm, I'm working with Encompass World Partners. Uh, Carla often travels with me uh, to 43 churches up and down the West Coast. Um, so I'm not here all that often in the course of the year. I'm gone at least half of the time and sometimes more. But, uh, and it, it's sometimes a little strange when people come up to me and say, is this your first Sunday? And, uh, and I said, this summer, July, marks uh, uh, 40 years that Carla and I have been a part of this fellowship. And uh, uh, this is home for us and your family to us. But uh, I'm working with the mission in Compass World Partners. It uh, was formerly known as GBIM, Grace Brethren International Mission, an organization that has committed itself to serving the Grace Brethren churches. There's about 250 of us across the country. And... Um, Mission's been in existence uh, 110 years, uh, but uh, we found a need to change our name in, uh, in recent years. A couple of things are new realities for us in our world. Among them is that in the countries in which we're working, um, there are uh, second and third generation young men and women who are raising up, taking leadership within the church and creating their own mission organizations and sending people uh, out around the world. It's like, we're not it. Uh, there, there's more. The family is expanding, and um, when we had an, uh, carried the name Grace Brethren International Mission, it only perpetuated a kind of a patron relationship to us of the U.S. as those who brought the gospel, and um, and it's felt the people, the leadership in the country is felt secondary, and we said we don't want that to happen, and we want a peer relationship. And so we needed to lose the word international in our name. Another thing that's happened in recent years, last 15 years, as a mission, we have focused in what we'd call the unreached countries of the world. Uh, Many of them are restricted. Um, It's difficult to be there. They're Islamic, um, Buddhist, uh, Hindu countries where we're beginning to do a lot of work. And um, when we come to a country, we have to present our legal papers. And our legal name was the Foreign Missionary Society of the Grace Brethren Church. And you can know, you get an idea how that got along in Pakistan or in, uh, in Thailand or Vietnam. Um, and so we have to enter the country through another organization that's already been approved and, and we've can't walk out front in who we are. So we need to consider a name change. And so we're... Our, our corporate name is Grace Trust because um, we've been entrusted with the grace of the Lord Jesus. But here we are. And the, uh, our uh, DBA or doing business as is Encompass World Partners. So we want to communicate that uh, we're about global mission and we do so as partners in partnership with the national churches and in partnership with other mission organizations around the world. Uh, we're of the conviction that uh, Jesus has one church, and we happen to be one of the families in that church. Uh, 
and, but the, um, I'll just give you a little background uh, to us. As a mission, I've uh, been around 110 years. Uh, we're involved in five continents um, in Latin America. Our first work was in Argentina uh, 100 years ago. Uh, there are 10 countries now in Latin America that we're involved in. Uh, we're involved in seven countries of Africa. Uh, we began in the Central African Republic. Um, a little more than a third, almost half of the population of the country are Grace Brethren Connected. Um, uh, the leadership of the churches is engaged, provides uh, counsel to the president of the country, to the military. Um, uh, they have broad influence uh, in the country, the Central Africa. But uh, there's seven countries now. They're engaged there. In Europe, we're in seven. Um, also, we uh, started in France and expanded to Germany and then to the rest of the countries here in the last 20-some years, 25 years. In the last 10 years, we've uh, begun work in Asia, and uh, we're scattered across Asia, and, and these are some of the more difficult places where we work. Uh, I'd say the places of a whole a lot of joy, uh, because, uh, you know, when you, when you just light a candle in a room that's pitch black, that light shines everywhere really quick. And uh, when you walk into places that have no hope, um, who only walk in fear, fear of evil spirits, fear of the religious structures, and know nothing of the hope and freedom and joy that we have in Christ. Uh, that is that's, uh, quite an experience for them and for us. Um, and most recently, we've begun work in North America, and that's primarily because of the um, movement of uh, internationals to the U.S., um, particularly in the last uh, 20, 30 years, but even more so in the last 10 years. And of the, um, of the uh, just be an example, um, I work with churches in uh, Alaska. We have four churches um, in, in Anchorage and on the Kenai Peninsula. And um, the, the state of Alaska has a population of 700,000. Uh, 350, half of the population of Alaska live in Anchorage. Uh, uh, some of it would not be inhabitable, maybe. But the, uh, the, maybe that's why they all live in Anchorage. But what I want to tell you is this, is that of that 350,000, 20%, 75,000 are from other countries. And of that population in Anchorage, 12% were born in another country, 35,000. So they're spending their first life and experience uh, in the U.S., in Alaska. And most of the people, the internationals, are from equatorial countries. They come from the sweat box. And what are they doing in the frigid north? I don't get that. Except that they understand oil and they understand fishing. And so there's work there for them in Alaska. And the state of Alaska is very open to immigration. But uh, I think of Orange County. Carla and I moved here uh, 40 years ago in July and uh, walked into this this auditorium uh, for the first time, and uh, uh, this has been home for us, uh, your family to us. But uh, when we moved to Orange County, uh, the population was one and a half million, um, seventy percent Caucasian, thirty percent Hispanic, so maybe twenty-five percent Hispanic, five percent other kind of things. And, and what's the 2010 census? Uh, three and a half million people, 30% Caucasian, 40% Hispanic, and 30% Asian. And you're here this morning. You know? So we're looking around and we just say, 
what has changed that the world is coming to the U.S.? And I said, we've been sending missionaries to the far corners of the globe, but they're coming to us at this point. So we're spending time as a mission focused here in, uh, in the North America as well. But uh, in the mission, I, my primary responsibility is uh, what I refer to as Encompass West. Um, there are 43, 43 churches up and down the, the West Coast, and um, my primary mission in that is to serve them in their efforts in mission. And I do that through uh, coaching and providing resources and networking churches of common interest and, um, and lead teams uh, out across the globe. So we still spend some tra- travel time in that. That's why you don't see us quite uh, as much. But uh, I ask the question when I'm in the churches, uh, what if every man, woman, and child were tangibly involved in cross-cultural mission locally and globally. What if? What would that look like? Now, I could say of us at Grace here that as a church, as a group of people, we're involved in mission. Uh, What do we have? 16 people going out this summer and over this coming year? Uh, Maybe it's more. It keeps, you know, new people surface every day. Hey, I'm headed out to wherever. uh, But what's interesting to me is that as a body of believers, we support that. We have funded all these people who are going out. So I know you have a generous heart toward mission. And that's marked us as a, as a congregation. Uh, there are a number of families from our congregation, that young couples that have gone out into mission. Um, we have uh, uh, people that are contemplating that kind of move today. Uh, we support all the people on our, our most wanted list that are posters are back up there on the back wall. The... Uh, uh, our missionary folk around the world, and, and we're engaged in mission. And when I'm in the churches up and down the West Coast, you're my model. You know, I'm, I'm, when I'm describing various ways of being engaged in the world, I tell stories of what you're doing. And I, I said, that's pretty, I mean, I'm proud about that, but I'm humbled about that. Too. I just I'm excited about what God's doing here. But this is I'm moving this direction this morning in John 4 for a reason. As a congregation, a congregation, although we're focused in mission, I don't want you as a person to miss out in the joy that comes with a sense that I am a representative of Jesus, have a sense of him speaking through me and using me in the course of my day as I live my life. As I interact with people in businesses, as I, I interact with neighbors, as, as, as I'm engaged in school or at work, that, that I'm there and I recognize the fact that Jesus is in me and with me and I'm his ambassador where I go. And I want to live in the fullness of the life that he gives me. And that's why I want to look at uh, John chapter 4 with you this morning. I have... Um, I'm going to run through these real quick with you. I, I got in trouble for service just a little bit in my time. I said everything I wanted to say. It just didn't come out like I thought it was going to come. But it was okay. So, so I said, that was the raw me. You get the half-baked version. The second service, is that what they say? I don't, here we are. What I wanted to tell you was that the churches up and down the West are involved in mission. And I wanted to give you some examples real quick. Among them is that they're building shelters for people around the world who, who don't have a place to live. 
They don't have any place to, to spend a night in shelter. And uh, the church in Soldotan, Alaska, for the last five, six years, has been traveling to Nicaragua. And they have found uh, communities of people that are living in shacks and shantytown kind of things, barrio, that, uh, and they've been building homes for them and uh, doing medical clinics, dental clinics, and doing soccer clinics for the kids, and, and just engaged with the people. From Alaska, Soldatna to Nicaragua, uh, we're halfway there. But uh, a couple of years ago, uh, some of our guys went with the team from Soldatna, and I did some pictures, and there we built a, a, a shelter for families, 11 homes, 10 days, um, did the medical clinics with 800 people coming through, uh, and uh, we gave homes to families that didn't have a place to live. And uh, on the last day, we had a trailer full of bags of food, beans and rice, and we traveled around the, the barrio with the trailer and, uh, and given out rice and foods to everybody. And this, I was kind of following along with all of this, taking pictures. A guy came up to me, and he spoke very good English. He just said, uh, he said, I've been watching you this week, and your faith is credible. And um, that meant a great deal to me. Um, a lot of people come and do good things, uh, but they do it in maybe some strange ways that aren't very loving, compassionate, or in, uh, encouraging to the people. Uh, well, I can say this in the short term, is that the church in Soldatna and their work and involvement in Nicaragua has resulted in six years, has resulted in three new congregations, gatherings of new believers in communities. And that can happen out of a church. and does happen. Um, there's um, uh, churches that are sending teams of people to various places of the world where people don't hear the gospel and, and sharing the good news, doing it through translation with nationals. And this would be a, a family that uh, was seven years ago I think now time-wise, a team of seven from Orange uh, went to uh, Cambodia up on the Thai border, and we shared the gospel with this family, and they came to faith. But what we shared with them was, was hope uh, in the light of the spiritual darkness of the world. They have a birdhouse. Uh, so that's the next picture that's there. Uh, bring it up. Anyway, it, it looks like a mailbox or a birdhouse. It sits out in front of every house that's there. It's a spirit house. And they put an offering there, some food or a coin or something. I don't know what happens to the food or coins, but it's left there in the box as an offering to the Spirit so the evil spirit will not trouble them. And they live in that kind of bondage and darkness. And you share with them God creator who knows them and loves them, is engaged in their lives and has authority over the spirits. And that's like life energy coming to them. And uh, a family uh, it came to faith there. Was, uh, the, the man in the, in the white t-shirt uh, is um, Colm. Uh, he's the commandant, the, the chief of police of, of the region there. And Pryor was a commander uh, in the Khmer Rouge that slaughtered millions in the country of Cambodia. He's come to understand the grace of God and mercy and forgiveness and has come to faith. And, uh, and he now is expressing that faith wherever he goes in his role and authority uh, as, a, as a believer there. Um, we're sending uh, missionaries. Uh, some of the churches here in the West uh, sent, are sending Rob and Nicole Plaster to Paris. They call them the Plasters of Paris. 
whatever. <laughs> so, but uh, they're engaged with a peer age group in, in Paris, uh, the professionals particularly. Uh, the young man on the other side of the table from uh, Rob and, and Nicole is uh, Julien. Uh, Julien is 33. Uh, he's a lawyer, and he represents Microsoft and Intel in France. And I said, at that age, how do you get a position like that? He says, well, it's a school I go to. And a conversation went on, and uh, we got to share about that, to talk about faith and trust and, um, and Jesus and a person. And uh, Rob is involved with Julian uh, every week. They go running together and, and spending time, and Julian's expressing interest. But churches here in the West have helped fund, make it possible, provide the funding so that uh, Rob and, and uh, Nicole can be there, live there, in, in Paris and, and work among the people. And we do that with the people we have sent all over the world. Um, we also uh, involved in sending teams of people, the Offits and, and the whole group that were there in Konkin. Um, and they're, uh, right now, Jenna uh, Weisenberger is there for the summer working with the team in Konkin. Um, but they're there reaching a population of people in the bondage of idol worship uh, they're taught that this idol that, that stands up in the Buddha that's in front of them uh, somehow uh, has ears. <laughs> uh, it can't speak, uh, but they come and they pray to Buddha and, and, and hoping for good luck. And that's the best they can ask for. Uh, and they have no idea, and yet it dominates the country of Thailand, dominates most of Southeast Asia. And when you come and you tell them again, the, introduce them to the person of Jesus and the, and the intimate personal relationship that they can have with them, uh, that's life-changing to them. The, uh, uh, yeah, there's some other things that we do. We're involved in training nationals. Here's a, a picture of the, the group. Uh, Doug Roller was uh, along with um, uh, Dale Workman from Long Beach. And uh, the three of us were there in Konkin, and we were able to participate in, in some training in uh, working with churches with some of the nationals. Same thing happens all over the world. And there's uh, you sitting here in the congregation this morning know more than most of the believers in these countries. And so you can go and just express what you know already and you're bringing news to them. So I encourage you to go. It's a, that's a vacation worth uh, spending some money on. Um, and we can arrange for you to uh, get connected where you can be useful. Uh, we also, some of our businessmen are partnering with businesses in other countries. Uh, this is um, the three men, in, the man in the middle is the pastor. Uh, the man on either side are businessmen who are doing outreach in, in Thailand, in their country. Um, one is in community development. So he goes out and he builds houses and puts a market in the middle of the, of the houses, the complex, builds a community, and then people come and they move into the area, but the people who are in the market are all believers. And in the, in the course of the years that followed, the people in the market helped the people who live in the community to find a place to market their wares, their crafts, their food, whatever, and in the context of those relationships, many come to faith. The man on the other side has bought large tracts of land in Cambodia and plants rubber trees, rubber plantation. And, uh, and then he brings in uh, people, uh, provides them a place to live, and uh, he gives every family some acreage of uh, rubber trees to take care of. Uh, 20% of the families that come in are believers. Uh, and uh, in just a matter of a few years, many of the families who are working in the plantation have come to faith in Christ because of the influence of believers. So there's things people are doing 
that are engaged in, in our world, what if every man, woman, and child were tangibly involved? Uh, we're drilling wells, providing clean water for people. Uh, we're providing orphan care, education in Africa and Cambodia. We're, as a church, engaged in Mexico, right across the border, and Tecate. Uh, August 18, there's a, a, big, a, a big day in which we're all going down there to, uh, to help out with the Tecate uh, uh, Boys School that's there. And grace is involved in most all these activities. And doing so in response to the words of Jesus that we read, lift up your eyes and look to the fields or the ripe under harvest. And um, this statement comes out of a context uh, there in John 4. Uh, bring you to this. There's a map of Israel. Um, I want to show you here coming up it, it doesn't work yet it, I lost some of the pieces in this when we we have new technology here I'm, I'm still trying to learn but anyway what I wanted to show you here is the, the map on the on the right you see Jerusalem and you see the red line that goes north and north of the red line there's a blue spot says Sea of Galilee in John chapter 4 Jesus is moving from Jerusalem to Galilee and the normal path would be to travel from the mountain in Jerusalem down to the Jordan River Valley and go up the valley to the Sea of Galilee it's the easy way but we find in this text that Jesus determined that it was necessary for him to go north of Jerusalem and you see the big yellow patch that says uh, Shamron well, just below Shamran, there's small letters there that say uh, Shechem. Well, at Shechem is the town of Sychar, and that's the place that Jesus was headed. But he chose to go north to Galilee through this rugged mountain area. Um, I, I got a picture here of how rugged we're talking about. Um, uh, right in the, the foreground down here, you have to look twice to see it, but there's uh, tents. That's a, a Bedouin uh, a village with some families that there. But this is the kind of rocky country that Jesus had to travel through to get to Samaria, to Sychar. And when you get to Sychar, there's a, a, Sychar is a small village right next to a town that was called Shechem. And Shechem was in, is in a valley uh, between two mountains. Uh, the mountain that I'm standing on taking the picture, looking down, is uh, Gerizim, and on the far side of the valley is uh, Ebal. And if you know the Old Testament at all, it was there where Joshua brought the people of uh, the Jews, and, and, he, and he read the whole first five books of the, the Bible, the law. And uh, <coughs> uh, to, the, to the west, at the far end of the valley, is the city of Samaria, and here are the ruins of King Ahab and Queen Jezebel. Uh, I mean, it's only been there for a few thousand years. Uh, I would that those walls could speak. But that'd give you a little feel for that the, there's history that's still present there. And at the under, other end of that, the, the Shechem uh, Valley, is the beginning of a large fertile valley that goes all the way down to Shiloh. And it was uh, standing at the top of that uh, valley that Jesus said, lift your eyes and look into the fields that ripen to harvest. Uh, he, was, he was painting a picture for them that the harvest is ready here, but he was speaking about a world of people, a harvest of people who do not know Christ, and they're ready. And I said, I don't know how many times I've read that passage, and said, I'd sure like to find some of them. Most of them are you know, resistive. And then I discovered it was more about how I went about doing my harvest than it was the harvest. 
sometimes you have to use the right tools or approach. But uh, anyway, and, and there at the top of the, the valley, there is the, the small village of Sychar, and there at Sychar is Jacob's Well. And you can go there today, it's still there. Uh, it's buried under a shrine, like all the biblical locations in Israel. But uh, that table-like form there is the, is the well it's been there 4,000 years. I desperately wanted to take a drink out of Jacob's well, but I thought water that's 4,000 years old probably doesn't taste very good. <clears throat> and I was told it was pretty murky. I said, I should have brought my backpack filter. Then I could say I drank from Jacob's well. But this is the well where Jesus is in the story. Turn with me to John chapter 4. Excuse me. And I'm going to start looking at reading it, verse 3. And it says here that Jesus, he left Judea, or Jerusalem, and went away again into Galilee, up to the north. And he had to pass through Samaria. It didn't tell us why he had to do that, other than the story that follows tells us why he had to do it. Um, And uh, so he came to the city, uh, a city of Samaria called Sychar, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph, and Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. And uh, in their time frame, uh, at uh, the time of Jesus, they, they began time at dawn, uh, approximately six o'clock, and so the sixth hour would have been noon. So it was lunchtime when they arrived at Sychar. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water at this well. And Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Therefore, the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink, since I am a Samaritan woman? For the Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it was who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. And so here we have the, the situation. Jesus has traveled through this rugged mountain region uh, uh, for days. And it, uh, this is a noontime um, They've arrived at this well. Uh, the disciples heard that there was an in and out in, uh, in Shechem, and so they, they split for lunch, and Jesus stayed there at the well, and this woman shows up. And his first comment to her was, would you give me a drink of water? He engaged her in conversation. It shocked her, and I think offended her. From the text that is here, her first response was, who do you think you are? You're a Jew. I'm a Samaritan. You don't have anything to do with us, or we with you. Now, you have to know some biblical history here. Uh, the sons of uh, Solomon, Jeroboam and Rehoboam, split the country, the nation. And there was the southern country, Judah, and the northern country, Israel. And that's where Samaria was. That was the capital of the northern kingdom. And uh, uh, they engaged themselves with uh, religious practices of a whole lot of other nations. They intermarried with the nations around. And so they were the spiritual perverts of, of uh, Judaism. And, uh, and they were held with... Um, uh, the, the people in the south would look north to Israel and say they're corrupted people. And the people in the north were proud and said, uh, 
well, we're free, we can do whatever we want. And uh, so they looked at disdain toward each other in this context. And so for Jesus to say something to this woman was a strange thing to her. And then he gave it, you know, she took a response and gave back to him sarcasm. And I'm going, this is interesting. Why would Jesus engage her in this way? Except for a purpose that he had. He offered her a gift. A gift of living water. In verse 11, she said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then are you going to get that living water? Now, I could look at that as just a point of information, but given the context, I think it was sarcasm on her part. Well, you Jew, you, you, know, you don't think anything of us, and you're going to give me living water. You don't have anything to dip with. Where are you going to get this living water? You're not greater than our father Jacob, are you? Who gave us the well and drank of it himself and his sons and cattle? And Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never thirst. But the water I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. So he brings some definition to what he meant by living water. And I don't think she even got it at that point. For she responds, Sir, give me this water so I will not be thirsty or come all the way here to draw. She was thinking still about having to come to the well to get water to drink. She didn't have any concept or understanding of what kind of living water would spring up from within that would be eternal. And so Jesus uh, chose to encounter her, said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you have correctly said, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one whom you have is not your hus- now is not your husband. This you have said truly. And the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. And she obviously didn't like being exposed in this way because she changed the conversation in her response. Verse 20, Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you people, the Jews, in Jerusalem, is the place where men ought to worship. But Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. It's not about the place. It's not about religion. It's about a relationship. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. And Jesus is bringing a message to this woman who hasn't found a relationship in life that has been satisfying to her. And to this person who is in the emptiness of her heart and her life, offer to her living water. He knew and sensed the thirstiness of her soul. 
and moved with the analogy, the, the metaphor of living water and offered to her hope in a living relationship with God. That's not contextual to a place of worship, but in a relationship with him that's in his spirit. And I think far too many times in the Western world, when we seek to bring hope to the people around us, uh, we come with an institutional answer, come to church. And we don't share the living hope that's in us. God's called us to be his ambassadors in this world to represent him wherever we go. And I don't do it out of intent. I do it because that's life. See what I'm saying? Jesus had to go through Samaria because there's people there who didn't know. And how are they going to know if he doesn't go? If he doesn't engage them? And he went in this conversation with the woman and shared with her hope, a living water that it spends, it springs up into eternal life. And the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. And when one comes, when this one comes, he will declare all things to us. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. I am that one. At this point, the disciples um, came and they were amazed that he had been speaking with a woman. Yet no one said, who do you seek or why do you speak with her? So the woman left her water pot and went into the city and said to the men, I thought it was interesting, she went to the men. Come and see a man who told me all things that I have done. This is not the Christ, is it? They went out of the city, that's all the people there, went out of the city and were coming to him, to Jesus. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples were saying to one another, no one brought him anything to eat, did he? And Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of the Father who my, will, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest. Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields that they are white for harvest. The story goes on in the context that the people all came and they listened to Jesus and Jesus hung around for two days and the, most of the people in the community came to faith. Jesus engaged one woman who went back and engaged her people. And they all came and responded in faith. And so I asked the question of us uh, here as we look at this text. And um, I said, what is it that Jesus sees? What do we learn about Jesus? What's important to him? And we see that he is focused in the outcasts. The Samaritan and a woman that was not held in regard by the Jews. One who was immoral, arrogant, rebellious. One with an empty heart and a thirsty soul. And to this one, he offered hope and the metaphor of living water that would be refreshing and quench the thirst in her life. He exposes her without rejection 
and states who he is. This is what Jesus sees when he looks out on us. He sees us for who we are. And in all our need. And he sees not only us as an individual, but he sees the multitude. And then I look at this text and I I say, what is it that the disciples see? And what can I learn about me? They see the unacceptable people. A Samaritan and a woman. And what's Jesus talking to her for? They see the inappropriate conversation that she's having with this woman in her, their eyes. They see her presence there as a distraction from the task at hand. It's lunch. And they see their own hunger and looking for a means to satisfy it. And I ask the question, how much joy do I miss out in the living relationship and faith that I have in Christ because of the focus on myself? Looking after my comfort. Functioning from my agenda. And I've lived long enough to know that I can consume all of life in those things. And I miss the joy that's there in Christ in representing him and and being an expression of his love to people around me who know no love, who have no hope, who live their life in darkness. Despair is a common uh, companion in life. And yet I have the living God present in me and in you who have expressed faith in Christ. And I think far too often I have the eyes of the disciples rather than the eyes of Jesus. And so I bring this thought to us just to reflect as a a church, as a body of believers who's committed to mission around the world, don't lose the personal joy of recognizing the fact that God has called you to be engaged in the world and you live in. The neighborhood, at work, at school, in the community, the places where you, you purchase goods, where you go have food. And can I be friendly? Can I engage people in conversation? Can I express interest in them? Can I, in building some relationship with the people around me, express my hope and my confidence in the course of conversation? That they might be thirsty to know my hope and confidence and ask me why? How? That I might share with them who Jesus is. That's what Jesus did here at the well with this woman. And Jesus said, lift up your eyes and look at the fields. What is it that Jesus sees in Matthew chapter 9, verse 36? And seeing the multitudes, he, Jesus, felt compassion for them because they were distressed and downcast like sheep without a shepherd. Just some context for you. We live in a world population of five, 7 billion people. 7 billion. And we think of our world in terms of geopolitical boundaries, countries. Uh, the Bible, 
when it uses the word nations, is, is using the word ethnos, which means peoples, or people groups, or nations of people. An identity. There's, uh, by um, a standard of characteristics, there are 16,655 nations in our world of 7 billion people. And of that 16,000, our world today, 7,051 are what are called unreached peoples, nations. And a defined unreached means there's less than 2% believers in the country, in the people group, not country, but in the people group. Less than 2%. 7,000 regarded unreached. And of that 7,000, 1,050 are regarded as unengaged, meaning there's no church and no known witness among that people. You see, there are other Samarias and uttermost parts of the world that are waiting for us to be responsive as Jesus was and going to Samaria rather than through the Jordan Easy Valley. And there's a path ahead that God calls us to be a part of. In Luke 19, Jesus tells the story, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. That's why he came. And in the end of the Gospel of John, we find that Jesus said to his disciples, Peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, I also send you. So I ask, what do you see when you walk through your day? And how do you respond? We've all been called to work the fields. And in doing so is the source of great joy for all who are willing to follow Jesus in that. And I want you to know that. You're my family. You know, we, we all do goobered things. We all get focused in ourselves. And, we, and I just wanted to call our attention again to the fact that God has called us to be aware of the world we live in and to engage it. Not in antagonism, but in love, with compassion. Father, I want to thank you for this morning. I thank you for your love for us, your grace and your mercy to us. Thank you for the story of Jesus' encounter with this woman. Help us, Lord, not to lose track of uh, similar people in our lives. We might be aware and be responsive and uh, might know the joy of seeing you work in us and through us. I thank you in Jesus.